Welcome, everyone. I'm Brennan Crane with WCLU. I'm joined today with Daniel Suddeth of the Glasgow Daily Times. And, uh, well, we're here today to uh, intro this new joint uh, cooperation, I guess, or however you want to put it, between uh, our two media entities to talk about hot topics. Isn't that right? Absolutely, Brennan. I'm glad to be able to get into this endeavor with you guys. WCLU does great work. And Glasgow Daily Times, we can pride ourselves on doing great work as well. So I think this would be a very good uh, venture, not only for us, but for the community. We can come together, share our resources, and be able to talk about issues that are affecting all of us. Absolutely. And, you know, I'm I'm just going to admit I'm excited to uh, see what comes out of this in terms of, you know, what, what topics we find to talk about and uh, just to see, uh, you know, how this is a, a good reflection of the media environment, of course, we have here locally. Um, so just, again, a little bit. Uh, so between the Daily Times and uh, WCLU, of course, uh, both news entities, and we're um, always in the field finding new things. So, of course, this is going to be an opportunity to maybe talk about some of those things um, in a way that we can't really do in our respective um, work, whether it's in the paper or on the radio. So uh, today we lined up. We have a couple of good hot topics that are, you know, really relevant right now. Um, the first being the election. Of course, mm-hmm. uh, yesterday uh, was Election Day, and then we have um uh, the EPB issue uh, that you could you could generalize, but uh, of course, Tag Taylor and Libby Short are here today to talk about uh, some things going on and uh, uh, the twenty-year contract that is pending uh, for the EPB. So we're going to talk about these items here uh, today on our podcast, and hopefully, some uh, light will be shed on some of these topics. <laughs> being the big topic around town and our state currently obviously five of six republicans won yesterday but the top of the ticket governor matt bevan lost his uh re-election bid to andy Bashir. uh race that we were told was about education and brendan i know you went out in the field and asked an expert about that i did you know i've uh spoken with uh kelly bauer actually uh who is a barron county high school english teacher miss um, bauer actually is involved as the uh, KEA president of this district here, of course, that encompasses Barron County. Um, And, you know, I just uh, stopped by and talked with her a little bit about uh, some things that, uh, what does this mean for uh, Kentucky teachers and, of course, uh, the greater image, Kentucky students uh, going forward. So we'll hear a little bit about um, that from her. Of course, we had a high turnout, and of course, we'll we'll talk about some numbers later, but uh, here's Ms. Bauer. All right, well, one of the things that I definitely think um, will be a positive change with uh, Andy Bashir as our next governor is the fact that the doors of the Capitol are never going to be closed again on us. You know, that is our state house. It is a place where we are able to go and express our uh, voice on matters and, and be politically active ourselves. So I think that's a, a positive, positive thing. I'm also excited about the fact that some of our government agencies that oversee education will actually now be back in the hands of people who as opposed to charter schools. So your, your Kentucky Department of Education, for example, that the essential, the entire board was wiped out and replaced with pro-charter school people. And then the uh, Educational Professional Standards Board also can be back to its full stature and operate the way it should for public education. And lastly, I just think that um, 
Andy Bashir will really be just a positive breath of fresh air in the governor's office. I think he will lead with compassion and kindness and respect, even for people who disagree with him. You know, just having that ability to hear others and communicate with others is something that we've been lacking in the state. And I'm looking forward to the opportunity of watching him and, and hopefully, you know, having conversations with him about doing bipartisan work that will help education in the state. It's the fundamental thing in the state that helps everybody to have a good quality public education. Okay, so of course we just heard from Kelly Bauer on um, some of her takeaways from the election. And of course, again, uh, being the Kentucky Education Association president for this district, um, she she's worked a lot, I know, over the past couple years with just being instrumental in um, just looking ahead to the gubernatorial race that um, obviously happened over the last year or so. And, uh, you know, one of the things I think that was interesting that she talked about was uh, the doors of the Capitol will be open now. Um, and uh, what, what do you think about that, Daniel? Well, I think that's just indicative of what really drove the opposition to to Governor Bevin during this campaign, a sense of him kind of leading by, you know, aggression and power, trying to, you know, force some things on the pension that weren't really agreed with, you know, the infamous late hour backdoor wastewater bill where they tried to sneak some of those pension changes into a separate bill and attach it to that. So I think Ms. Bauer really hit the nail on the head with that. And also this race was, you know, she touched on with, you know, the positive, more positive outlook from Bashir, whether that's true will remain to be seen. But I think in theory, that's what really hurt Governor Bevan is if you look at the ticket, the results, I mean, he, our Republicans did really well Tuesday in the election. They won the other races easily, but a lot of those Republicans obviously were not voting for Governor Bevin, even though he espoused most of the beliefs, the traditional Republican beliefs. Donald Trump was here twice to campaign for him. He was here on election eve to campaign for him. It was his attitude. It was how he treated people. It's how he treated specifically public educators. A lot of people saw that, and even people who weren't educators saw that attitude and did not agree with it. I talked to several people before the campaign during, you know, Bevin's first or two years in who were very shocked at the way he treated people, talked to people, that sort of thing. So I think she kind of hits the nail on the head when she talks about his attitude. I think Kentucky elected Bashir based on personality, not really politics. I I think Governor Bevin's attitude towards teachers and his attitude generally is what really hurt him. And that is an interesting uh, concept to, to me, just because I think a lot of the time we obviously focus on the politics. You know, what is this person for? What is that person um, against, uh, per se? But it, it's amazing just the the person that was, you know, elected is what really the voice was, just that, that person's attitude, I suppose. Um, and whether that plays out well or not, we'll, of course, see. Uh, but I totally agree. I think that a lot of people, you know, really base their opinions off of, um, how Mr. Bashir, you know, I guess came down to their level um, with, you know, Bevan kind of having this hostile approach a lot of the time. Um, but at the same time, you know, on the other side, we could look at it, you know, Bevan had some some outlooks, I guess, um, you know, really crediting himself as, you know, um, there for kids or, you know, things like that. So it is just an interesting concept uh, for sure. And then, of course, we, we said we'd talk about some turnout. Of course, uh, turnout was up across the board. Uh, when I talked with Helena Birdwell, of course, the clerk here in Barron County, she had mentioned that uh, voter turnout was up about 10% more than she had expected. So, And I think that's indicative of, once again, people are more uh, inspired to come out and vote against somebody. 
if they agree with somebody, they're not usually as likely to really come out for that. Or if they just have a mild disagreement with someone, a lot of times when you see an incumbent lose, it's because a lot of people are unhappy with him and they're more driven to come out to the polls and do that. And one thing I noticed, which I'd like to get your thoughts on, this is more your demographic than mine. And I'm, I'm getting up there, getting a little long in the tooth, <laughs> but we always harp on our younger generation for not voting, not taking part in the process, which historically numbers show they don't vote as well as other age groups. But it seemed like this election, there were just haven't seen the numbers yet, but just judging by social media and other things that it seemed like more younger people were getting involved in this election. I'm just curious what your thoughts are on why that happened. Absolutely. Like I, you know, I had mentioned that, you know, yesterday specifically, just looking across social media, I, you know, I saw a lot of people, you know, holding their, I voted, uh, stickers up or just at least entertaining the thought that they made a point to go and voice their opinion. And of course, you know, voting takes maybe 30 seconds to do, you know, fill mm-hmm. out a ballot and put it I was in and out in five minutes. Exactly. I mean, such a quick process. So yes, uh, the thing I think, of course, this is just maybe my speculation here, but young people, uh, again, this was a huge election um, for especially governor. And I think young people may have been inspired or at least had a, had an awareness of what this impact of this election would make on Kentucky's, uh, you know, education, Kentucky's economy, Kentucky's future in the next several years. Um, And just speaking from a young perspective here, of course, um, having been in secondary uh, education in the last, you know, five years, I have witnessed, um, you know, a lot of teachers, of course, going to Frankfurt to maybe uh, voice their opinion or, you know, missing class for those reasons. Uh, But as the person setting, you know, the pupil in the classroom, I really think, you know, that that said something to me that was like, wow, they they're leaving their classrooms that they, of course, you know, this is their job, something they care about. But this must be important. What are they doing? So, of course, I think a lot of young people asked those questions. They looked into those things and found out that they needed to voice their opinion, too. Um, and I think it just serves as a good point to say, hey, this is why voting is important. To further prove your point, I saw a graphic just before I came in talking about the numbers. Um, of course, Bevin carried way more counties than Bashir. Bashir won the heavily populated ones, but he also won every county. Every county he won except one was the home to a college university, higher learning university. So obviously those counties with kids going to school, younger generation going to college, voted for Bashir in big numbers, big turnout. So that kind of speaks more to your point about, you know, the younger generation seeing that effect of the pension debacle and the crisis that, you know, ensued in the the protest, you know, now those, that generation has grown up is now in college and they're seeing that and they turned out and voted more. And also that concern over education in general, really a driving point in this election. And I think it really helps too, just with, you know, the, the media presence for sure. Um, and, and I mean media in terms of, you know, like social media or even TV, anything that falls into the media realm, um, young people have a really, really good awareness of what's going on around them from that standpoint of they they know the key issues, whether, you know, it, it, you could discuss another topic if they, if, you know, any demographic truly knows the, the basis of something. Uh, but I will say, I think a lot, you know, building up to the election, we're, of course, exposed to uh, political ads, uh, commentary, everything, but truly we're able to actually hear from the candidates themselves. Um, they're a lot more 
uh, proximal, if you will, mm-hmm. uh, especially, I mean, we could even look at this on a national level. Um, our candidates literally have social media accounts that enable them to be on our feed. So what I'm trying to say is I think young people are consuming that content a lot, and uh, that just enables them to sort of develop their opinion and uh, feel fired up about it. So Absolutely. You know, transitioning from that and how talk about looking forward, what this means, you know, for Kentucky, a lot of people were looking at this result uh, as it came in last night and, you know, saying, well, watch out, Mitch McConnell, you know, you're going to lose. You got a potential losing. Watch out, Donald Trump. This sends a message. I don't think so in Kentucky. I don't think last night's results really meant anything for the Republican Party. It's a red state controlled, you know. The state house controls still most of the uh, executive branch of our government. Um, I will say, though, I do think it does send a little bit of a warning to Donald Trump because Bevin has really taken a lot of Trump's playbook in terms of his treatment of the media, his treatment of people who don't agree with him, his obsession with kind of controlling the message on social media. I mean, Bevin's infamous for making those YouTube videos every time somebody (laughs) reports something he doesn't agree with and blasting that out. And I think voters... In Kentucky, he said, you know, we've had enough of that. We we don't agree with your attitude toward teachers. We don't agree with your attitude in general. And, of course, I think a lot of people, that's been their main, you know, issue with Trump is not really his policy. Because there's not really a lot, I don't think, policy-wise, you can look at with what Bevan did in four years that really just makes people stand up and scream. Even teachers, if you ask them to look at the nitty-gritty of what was approved, it wasn't really a drastic change. Um And I think the same could be true with Trump is that some people are going to say, you know what, this isn't how a person in power should be conducting themselves. And that could hurt him potentially. But I don't think it's going to affect him carrying Kentucky. And I definitely don't think it's it's going to be a real long shot to see Mitch McConnell be unseated, you know, especially based on what we saw last night. If anything, the Democrats really need to regroup after last night and realize what kind of candidates are we putting out here? Why are we not getting our base inspired? What happened to when Kentucky, you know, had more moderate Democrats who would come out and vote for us? Now they all seem to gone to the Republican Party. Is that our candidates? Is that our message? Is that our lack of grassroots campaigning? Lots of issues to be answered by the Democratic Party in Kentucky as well. Absolutely, and you know, I thought we might disagree a little bit more on our first our first episode here, but hey, that's okay. Uh, what I do want to say though is I do think it is interesting for sure that. Um, I, I don't think that it's, there's a you know a, a strong influence or a strong indication that this is what's going to happen in the 2020 election, especially at the national level. Um, same thing in 2016. You know, we we thought that people were you know going to vote more liberal or they're going to be they're going to lean that way. But truly, I think that what's happened here in Kentucky is it's just been such a, a, a again a proximal issue. It's just educators mm-hmm. especially that's probably one of the the biggest things that really influenced this election to be honest mm-hmm. um, and educators are as, as proximal as anybody mm-hmm. is in the uh, in the workforce I guess because you know we we have students in schools we have those students coming home maybe and talking about those issues again so yes I, I don't think this is a strong indication at all but I do think it sends some message to say hey just because you are you know maybe blasting this sort of rhetoric or you know I don't think that's necessarily saying that you're going to uh, find success that way. Right. Um, and then on a more local topic, something I find interesting, of course, uh, this is completely um, if scenario, but we, of course, typically see this when we have someone um, like a governor or a president, someone elected, generally they're going to clear their cabinet mm-hmm. um, and they're going to appoint people that generally align more with, with their point of views and such. Um, 
we have, of course, uh, Mr. David Dickerson mm-hmm. in Frankfurt, mm-hmm. um, who has worked as the labor secretary under Matt Bevan. Mm-hmm. Um, again, I, d- I don't know if if he might uh, depart Frankfurt or not, but mm-hmm. but I wonder what does this mean here locally? Because we, of course, you know, just recently we we saw some uh, some funding given to the city for road projects. We you know, but that's the classic election year paving. That's gone on. That, that, I've known that term since Absolutely. twenty years ago. I, I remember when I first heard that term, and it's that money's not really tied to any specific governor, gov- and every governor, Democrat, Republican, sure. everybody does that. You know, it's election year. We're going to go out and award these projects. We're going to call a press conference. We're going to make it seem like we came up with this. That money's allotted to the state every year to give to right. to different uh, causes. They pretty much have to do that. So, um, you know, I think. Obviously, to the victor go the spoils. Uh, I know Bashir had, had said today that he planned on putting some Republicans in in his cabinet and in various positions. Which would, if he plans on getting anything passed in Frankfurt, it would be a great move because he's you know going to be pretty much a lonely Democrat there by himself, looking at the state house and how the rest of the government there is right. going to be comprised. But locally, I don't see that really affecting any you know funding necessarily for us i do believe mr dickerson's you know done a good job on that and probably fought for barron county in, in some ways where we might might not have had it but who knows i mean we have some qualified people here too who could you know maybe be selected for that sort of cabinet position as well so for a lot remains to be seen but you know hopefully hopefully there'll be some bipartisanship we need a lot more of that in this country not it doesn't right. say you have to surrender your your values on one side or the other but a little bit more common sense as far as getting some basic things accomplished and and yeah, and that's what I was going to say. You know, I, of course, um, totally not under the impression that this was just something that happened. You know, what three, two or three months before election yeah. day? Well, look here, um, we found yeah, some money. Yeah, we'll pave those roads. It's clearly uh, a political stunt, uh, sure. and this is that's fair to say for either side. I oh mean, yeah, we're, it's gone on forever. Yeah, yeah. we're we're going to have these type of things. Oh yeah, um, but yeah, I, I just wanted to ask because I know a lot of people may have been, you know, they they speculated that, you know, it's right. like. Because we've heard a lot about, um, well, Barron County is finding a lot of success having, um, you know, a homegrown Barron County or a native up there in Frankfurt, mm-hmm. you know, that might serve as a voice for sure. um, our county and community. Uh, but, yeah, I, I totally agree. I, I think that, you know, if I guess anyone has a fair chance to fight for anything, sure. for sure. So. That is an interesting concept, of course. And, you know, I, I don't think I threw out those numbers. Um, just as a standpoint, we talked about um, most counties voted Republican or voted red, as how I was referring to it as la- or last night during my coverage. Uh, but Bevan's final tally here in Barron County, uh, 7,693 votes, and Bashir, of course, 5,280. And uh, Hicks had 256 votes. Um, I can't remember the total tabulation across the state, but I think... Uh, you know, Hicks had quite a bit, you know, that that was interesting. I think he had about 28,000 yes, total I, votes. Yeah. And if you look at the margin, of course, right now as we speak today, Bashir's margin of victory is around 5,000. So, I mean, hypothetically, you know, he may need to send Mr. Hicks a Christmas gift because, you know, some people may have not really liked Bevan and, and decided to vote for him or not really liked Bashir and voted for Hicks instead of him. No, It's so hard to tell who would have voted for who, right. but a libertarian candidate generally takes away votes from a Republican so um, that that definitely had you know some impact on the race. Um, those third party candidates getting that, but we've seen that in other elections, and arguably Democrats have been hurt by that as well. But it is it is a very interesting stat, and the Barron County numbers not surprising to me. Um, I think Barron County is definitely leaning right and, sure. and continue to lean you know further right. It's just 
it's like a lot of counties similar to us in Kentucky, uh, very conservative on social issues, right. uh, very conservative, a lot of issues, not that big young demographic that we think about with college type towns who are more prone to vote uh, differently, on, especially on social issues. And at the end of the day, this race became a on the Republican side, they were trying to turn it into a race about abortion and about, you know, immigration, sanctuary cities, things, you know, in my opinion, don't really have much to do with the governor's race, but kind of appeal to that social uh, heart, social conservative heart, whereas, you know, uh, Democrats trying to, you know, talk about different issues th- themselves. So I, I'm not surprised that Barron County went that, that strongly in favor of Bevan. Yeah, and that was uh, that was something, too, about, you know, just social issues. We were talking about a lot of issues that are easy to say I'm for or against. And, and a lot of people, um, you know, I don't want to give the wrong notion. Of course, everyone's entitled to his or her opinion. But a lot of people are easily swayed mm-hmm. by um, things that truly don't matter mm-hmm. in these sort of elections. Like you just said, um, you could look at it on, at a very, very fine level and you could say, yes, maybe the governor has some influence on a national standpoint. But um, yeah, those those bigger ideas, I think, uh, really are minuscule in terms of these sort of elections. I think the things that mattered um, were certainly voiced, and that was you know the state of education in this state and uh, what, what's happening going forward with the economy and such. So, sure, totally play on emotion for sure. And you know, again, the turnout, uh, the stat on that, forty one point eight percent of you know Barron County voters turned out. That's that's you know nine percent away from half I of know. voters. And it's sad that we're in a position where that makes us happy, but it it's, makes me happy. I thought it'd be thirty low thirties um, to see that many. Well, People turn out on a non-presidential election year, I think, is a, is a very positive sign for where voting is going in Kentucky. Exactly. And, you know, just as a standpoint, of course, uh, I just cannot stress enough, this is something that is huge here um, across the United States. I mean, it has been for years. Uh, you know, voting is such an important part of the democracy here. You know, um, we have so many rights that a lot of people are not afforded, um, even uh, across our borders. Uh, so I think, you know, uh, of course, uh, this this hemisphere, I guess, is fairly democratic. But, you know, if you go to the eastern hemisphere, even it, it's it's a bit of a different story. So but it wasn't always guaranteed here, even 40, 50 years ago. Well, that's right. I, and, and so easy for us to forget that. And, you know, it is. Yes. And so I, I think that is cool. And I, I'm looking forward to hopefully we could maybe give an update eventually about maybe some of those demographics, because, mm-hmm. you know, uh, again, you know, I have predominantly younger people on mm. my feed, um, but maybe, you know, Miss Susie Q has her generation and uh, she, and her demographics. And that's so. where the key to winning elections lies. That, you know, the political analysts are going to look at those demographics. They're going to see who voted. They're going to say, hey, 18 to 23-year-olds didn't vote. You know what? Next election, we're not even going to bother appealing to them on issues. Why even care? Because they didn't. Or pick a demographic, whatever it is. If, if people see you're not actively voting and taking part, your voice is not going to be heard. And, you know, there, we've seen so many examples of why every vote matters. And here on a governor's election, hundreds, you know, hundreds of uh, thousands of votes cast, and we're still looking at a possible re-canvas that could come down to, you know, a, a couple thousand votes, which on a state scale is basically equal to one or two votes, you know, per town, per city, that sort of thing. So the, the excuses for not voting are really just that excuses. You know, nobody's that busy. It doesn't take long to get registered to vote. People are more than willing to help you out. It's a huge responsibility. So, yeah, we could talk about that all day, but definitely like to continue to see that number tick up on the voter participation. Absolutely. And, you know, the of course, by statute, you are entitled to get 
pretty much as much help as you need mm-hmm. at the the precinct. Uh, but mm-hmm. uh, you know the the people that are working at each of the, especially in Barron County, I know they're they're happy to help. So mm-hmm. uh, that that's just something to look forward to. Perhaps mm-hmm. you didn't vote um, in this election, but hey, there's a primary coming up, of course, next year, and a, a huge general election coming up. So. Um, maybe those are two things you could look forward to. And, uh, of course, uh, just something that, of course, was a big item of interest was uh, things going on in Metcalf County. Mm-hmm. I know uh, you know a lot of people were looking forward to things going on there, especially with the sheriff's race. Um, but just as a standpoint, this is a good validation of the point you made a while back about um, Barron County, of course, leaning right, and Metcalf County is the same way. Um, so I think that both of these counties sort of, you know, they overwhelmingly were Republican-based, but uh, that that's cool that in the end it, it didn't turn out that right. way. And For the governorship, at least. This is where, Brendan, you're a frontline on the scene guy. You were in Metcalf last night. I'm reporters were, you know, us that can't really say. As an editor, I can kind of sit back and kind of cast my opinion on some things when I don't cover them directly. But, wow, what a strange sheriff's race in Metcalf County. Yes. I mean, you have a guy that took over after uh, Mr. Brooks passed away from leukemia that had, by all accounts, done a pretty good job, you know. I mean, I'm obviously not following him around every day, knowing exactly everything he's doing. And then you have this weird situation where they call a meeting of the Republican Party where yes. they people say that he hadn't made any indication to want to run again, and then he's basically saying that he was never asked, and you have a, some people – basically come up who have little to no experience at all in the field. And then uh, you end up having a candidate, you know, Lottie Hodges winning in, in write-in fashion. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's it, that, strange to say the least. Yes, and that was strange. And a lot of people, of course, uh, I know um, here I was in the field, of course, mm-hmm. but here at the station, I, you know, I heard that a lot of phone calls were coming in last mm-hmm. night. Um, but those phone calls were revolving around why can't we have an update? Why mm-hmm. can't well the reason was is because those write-ins are literally write-ins. You, you know mm-hmm. the voter had to physically think of the candidate they wanted and write them in. Mm-hmm. You know they were not on the ballot, and uh, if you you know didn't know, I guess the candidate right. that you wanted, uh, but Medcalf County certainly did, and right. uh, you know Carol Cheney, the clerk there, she uh, at the very end of the night had said that. It was just such a pleasant process to verify some 2,200 names yeah. <laughs> uh, because everyone knew who they were voting for. You know, right. they wrote the first and last name in a clear manner. She said, and I just thought that was interesting because people, you know, they Cared came, enough. yeah, they went to the polls and they knew who they were voting for. Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, that's no indication if they voted for Hodges or any of the others because the others had mm-hmm. some turnout, but obviously Hodges uh, took the the final win there. Sure. And uh, you know. Away from the political side of things and the the nominating process, something that was so interesting to me, um, and I, I mentioned this briefly in my you know story about what happened there, but uh, to truly just give my personal account, uh, when we walked into Lonnie's office, I say we, in fact, it was uh, Gina mm-hmm. with the Daily Times, and uh, I were there, and uh, we we had you know our recorders out and we're waiting and uh Lonnie looks up and he he's like who won (laughs) and uh I believe it was Gina who you know sort of mumbled it was you and uh, at that moment um 
you know, no, he did not answer, you know, at that moment. And what happened was, um, as he referred to her uh, lady friend, mm-hmm. uh, she was in the room as well as Mindy Brooks, uh, mm-hmm. Ricky's wife. Um, they just immediately started crying and mm-hmm. hugging each other. And I just thought that was interesting mm-hmm. to see that, you know, they were that overcome mm-hmm. and, uh, to especially mm-hmm. see that we, well, we broke the news there to them, but, uh, you know, he, he eventually responded and I think it was just. A cool process. Oh, it's so much emotion. And, in, you know, for the candidates, uh, you know, for the people involved in elections, we see a lot of hateful rhetoric on, you know, social media after it happens. And part of that is just because people are very wound up in these issues. People care deeply about their communities, their state, their country, and they have different ideas about how to make it better or, you know, how to improve on things. And it, it, it's a very emotional process, and especially, you know, I've never run for anything, but being a candidate, you're waiting on people to give you the approval to, to do the job that you think that you can do. And, you know, obviously the situation that Lonnie went through there with the, the different uh, candidates being put forth instead of him. Um, yeah, I can, I can see that being a very emotional time and uh, great that we have journalists there to, uh, to cover those moments because they definitely are special. Absolutely. And, you know, again, just the, the, the moment um, across the board, you know, people were of course hearing the results uh, being announced and, I'm just sitting there reporting on those, and uh, the the funniest part again. This is this is the avenue. See what we're saying. Uh, you know, can't fit this in maybe the art or the article or the the uh, news story. But hey, uh, <laughs> the UK game was on yeah. during election night. You know, Michigan State and UK were playing, yeah. and uh, quite a few people, in fact, excuse themselves from the room to go sure. catch a glimpse of the game on sure. in the sheriff's <laughs> office. So uh, that was uh, that was very funny. You gotta get your priorities straight. Yes. You know, the UK is a little yes. bit more important than our democracy. I agree with that. Yeah. So at the end of the night, of course, people were tweeting and, you know, wow, what a night in Kentucky, mm-hmm. you know, this, mm-hmm. this somewhat of an upset, I guess, you mm-hmm. know, what we were, what we were expecting mm-hmm. was maybe not Bashir to win. I don't yeah, know, but I would say so. Yes. Yeah, so we had that going on and eventually uh, UK went on to beat Michigan state. Right. And, and so crazy things happening in the state, but um, all those things sort of, you know, make Kentucky great. I mm-hmm. think. Yeah. Absolutely. Makes so, us unique. Yes. So, of course, uh, that that wraps up on the uh, issue there with uh, the election night. And, of course, that was a, that was just a, a huge conversation on election night because it's, it's such a vital component of a democracy. And uh, up next, of course, uh, we have, like I said earlier, uh, we have Tag Taylor in with us today and Libby Short, who are both from the Glasgow Electric Plant Board of Directors. And they're going to talk about the 20-year contract. So we'll look forward to hearing from them. Now we're pleased to be joined by Tag Taylor and Libby Pruitt-Short, members of the Glasgow Electric Plant Board. Appreciate you all joining the show today. How is everybody doing? Great. Good afternoon. We are awesome. Yeah, thanks for having us. Absolutely. I know lots of issues going on with the plant board, obviously been covered quite a bit, but specifically today, kind of want to talk about this pending uh, 20-year deal. It's been discussed quite a bit with TVA for the future. If you all don't mind, maybe give our listeners a brief little recap of where that stands and kind of what's going on currently with that issue. So um, right now we've got a 20-year agreement put in front of us to sign. Um with TVA, and as uh, some people may or may not know, um, historically these have been, well, for the last you know, 15, 20 years anyway, these have been five-year rolling contracts. So in other words, if we wanted to get out of our uh, supply agreement with TVA, we would have to give them a five-year notice. 
Um, they have come back to us over the course of the last couple of months, and they've offered now a 20-year uh, uh, contract. So um, what that means is, is, is uh, we are now going to be buying power from TVA if we sign the contract for the next 20 years, and that is the notice that we have to give them if we want to stop that supply contract. Uh, in order to give us an incentive to sign the contract, they're going to offer us uh, 3.1% um, in, uh, in the form of a rebate uh, for the total amount of energy that we purchase from TVA. So, you know, just doing some back of the napkin math, uh, it's right around $50,000 a month, about $600,000 a year. For the next 20 years, it's worth about $12 million to us. So, um, you know, we want to ensure that we've looked at our options and we have a pretty clear understanding of what the next 20 years looks like. But, um, you know, that's what we have in front of us today mm -hmm. is, is the uh, possibility of signing that 20-year contract. That contract does include, in addition to the rebate, some um, incentives, uh, some price controls that can't go up more than 5% over a five-year time frame. Um, they are going to allow us to negotiate some um, renewable energy generation so we can generate some of our own energy locally, which has not been allowed under TVA. Uh, you've always had to go through TVA to get those renewable energy uh, projects off the ground. But um, we're going to now uh, be able to uh, provide, you know, up to between two to three megawatts worth of energy production locally mm -hmm. uh, as part of the contract negotiation. So, you know, 131 out of the 153 different local power companies that are under TVA's purview have signed the agreement already. So it's about an 85 percent, you know, rate. Um, so, uh, you know, we've got some issues that we have to discuss internally. We try to get a crystal ball out and look at what may be coming down the pipe. But, you know, after speaking, Libby and I both have spoken with uh, some of the LPC, some that uh, reached out to some that have signed, some that haven't signed. And one of the, um, uh, you know, the biggest uh, I guess the biggest reasons why these companies are signing is because it always comes down to a transmission issue. Mm -hmm. And we can get into that if you want, but it's a, uh, you know, there's really four major reasons why, you know, I think the board as a whole is, is uh, really looking very closely at this 20 year deal. Right. Obviously a lot has been written and said about this issue. Um, some people for, some people against, I know the mayor suggested doing a study to look into some of this issue, maybe some other issues. What do you all as board members see? Obviously you all are, Privy to a lot more information and a lot more discussions about these. This is kind of specifically what you guys look at. What do you all see as being kind of a fair presentation of where this stands, and maybe what are some issues you think need some more clarification as far as what's being put out to the public? Yeah, there's there's a lot of misinformation. Um, unfortunately, sometimes uh, Daniel, uh, you and Brennan excluded, but sometimes uh, uh, members of the media are more interested in in uh, selling their product rather than maybe getting uh, <clears throat> the facts straight. And what I've what we've witnessed is, is there's a lot of um, emotion that's been garnered, I think, on this issue that's based really on misinformation. So, you know, that's one of the reasons why, you know, I really appreciate you having us on the show so that we can maybe address some of that uh, information that is not entirely correct. Mm -hmm. um, one, of those, one of those issues is that these rates really hurt industry. And what we're finding is, um, you know, right now there are a couple of industries that are looking at, at Glasgow, and one of the... Um, uh, one of the largest reasons why they're looking at relocating here is because of the rate, structure, rate structure, not in spite of the rate structure. So we, uh, you know, Barron County, as we all know, is in, uh, I won't say desperate need, but is in, uh, is in critical need of good quality industry in this community. And, and uh, the last thing we want to do as a uh, uh, public power company is to 
make that playing field where it's not as appealing as maybe other cities across the southeastern U.S. that we're uh, competing with on a daily basis. So do you, feel, do you feel this 20-year deal then is conducive to encouraging more industry to come here? And if so, generally, why do you believe yeah, that? Yeah, absolutely. So TBA being a public power uh, company and under the public power model, um, it's a break-even you know, um, operation. Uh, some, you know, it's a net zero sum. So it's not a for-profit utility. So they're able to work through some negotiations with large industry. Um, TBA has its own economic development. Uh, division that uh, works through uh, with private industry on incentives and rate structure and tariff design, which can make um, Glasgow and other local power companies that are within the TVA footprint much more attractive than maybe what you can get through private industry. And and you know some of that has gone on in the past over the over you know the several decades, um, and there's some of that going on you know currently. So um, you know that's one of the benefits of being able to work with the public power model and the public power utilities. Is the fact that um, it being nonprofit, there are some uh, some extra avenues that we can pursue that make our community a little bit more attractive, maybe than some of the others that don't have. Um, in addition to that, you know, we've got a 161 kV power line coming into Glasgow. Uh, the only other option through any other provider, secondary or tertiary providers that may be around here, is a 69 kV line. Um, you know, we're and it's the equivalent of you know 69 kV will work. But it's the equivalent of driving to you know Florida on your uh, spare tire, your little spare tire. It's uh, it may get you there, but it's not probably not going to be uh, you're not going to be very uh, not going to feel like it's very reliable. And at the same time, you're probably going to be worried about getting home without mm-hmm. making a change. So you know again, it, this is all about trying to lay the groundwork and the proper framework economically, geographically, and from a supply side when you're supplying maybe you know, some of these large manufacturing organizations with one of their largest raw materials, which mm-hmm. is the power to produce their um, their product. Mm-hmm. So it's all about laying that proper groundwork in order to make our community attractive for, uh, for industry. Um, industry, and we know in Wall Street in particular, there's one thing that they um, appreciate and probably respond to positively more than anything else, and that's going to be consistency. Mm-hmm. Nobody likes to have everything up in the air and and uh, wonder whether you know what we're going to do five years down the road. So, you know, there's several things that are that are really drawing us towards this 20-year agreement. Um, you know, and again, the mayor and I talked, and we agreed to, to look at all aspects of it. But with some new developments within the industry right now, um, you know, and, and uh, what we've got an opportunity as far as economic growth in this community, the cost of the um, consultant, you know, may outweigh what potential benefits we may see from it. So those are things we all have to look at. Mm-hmm. Libby, do you also see this as an economic development issue? And also, <clears throat> second question to that, do you feel this is kind of the best option available, maybe not perfect option as far as signing up for 20 years, maybe the best that, that can be done right now? I do see this as an economic issue, as a development issue. Because, um, I mean, we know that Glasgow, we need some jobs mm-hmm. here. We've lost a lot of industry. Um, and... The second part of your question, am I thinking this is the best alternative? You know, what people need to understand is sometimes if we have X, Y, and Z to choose from, it's a simple fact, we may not even like the options, but our job as members of the EPB is to pick the best out of what we have in front of us. So for people, you know, for people in the community who think that, we just wing it or there's uh we're doing something to profit up we're not we put a lot of hours into this um and 
our goal is to do what is best for our community overall. And what our community needs, once again, we need industry back. You know, I think it was stated at a, a city council meeting early, early in the year that 60% of the city's revenue is generated from payroll taxes. We have lost industry. We are now losing Cytel. Thank God they have some people that are working at home, so that will at least still generate some of those taxes. But we've got to be very progressive right now and in attracting industry. So if that 20-year contract is the best option to do that, then yes, I would be for it. But, you know, as Tag said, we're still, we're still looking at our options, but um, that's definitely a viable one. Yeah, and just, to, and just to address those options, I mean, just so everybody knows, really we have four, four good options. Um, number one, we can wheel power from another provider through TVA's transmission lines. However, TVA being a pseudo-federal governmental agency, they have an all-powers contract, you cannot wheel power through their lines. They just don't allow it. Number two, we can build our own transmission lines into Glasgow. And we can purchase our power from somebody like KU or Eastern Kentucky Power. And, however, <clears throat> the nearest delivery point for our, our power, which is a 161 kV line, which we want to have to attract industry, is... We have two delivery points. One's in Summershade, one's in Haywood. And you, if we want to have redundancy, we'd have to build from both delivery points. That's about 30 miles of transmission lines. And according to the CFC, which is the organization that studies and does feasibility studies and helps with the underwriters and underwriting some of these large utility transmission projects, it's about $3.5 million per mile for our part of the country. Well, 30 miles at $3.5 million miles, $105 million dollars. So any savings that we might, and I say might, we're looking at about a 10% savings maybe, um, if we go to a third uh, a secondary provider, <clears throat> any savings that we may recognize through that con contractual change will quickly be eaten up plus some with just the debt service on $105 million for the transmission lines. So that one's really not feasible. Thirdly, we can um, just drop TBA altogether, drop the 161 kV line that comes in here, and then we could we could purchase power from um, a secondary provider that does deliver power into Barron County already. However, it's a it's just a less reliable setup. We just have to abandon our 161 kV lines. Number one, which is tens of millions of dollars worth of transmission lines. Secondly. Um, we would only be we would only have a 69 kV line that'd be coming into Glasgow as opposed to 161 kV line, and we would lose reliability because it's kind of like a it's, it's set up like a spoke on a wheel. That central line goes down, and every part of Glasgow then is out. So we're going to lose reliability. We're going to lose our ability to be competitive within the marketplace because we're 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 downsizing to a smaller transmission line. All right, and secondly, we're losing uh, the ability to make ensure that our power stays on at all times because the the smaller that smaller line is set up in a way that such that a um, an electrical storm could shut the entire grid down for the city of Glasgow. Now that's not good for for anybody. I don't care if it's industry or residential or if you're a business like mine. You know, I've got to keep the computers on if I'm going to make any money. Um, fourthly, we can uh, build our own generation facilities. But, you know, we've got, a, on our peak days, we've got about a 50 megawatt load. On our regular days, we've got about a 30 megawatt load. 
So in order to make sure that we have enough to cover us during those peak days, we'd have to build, you know, about 65 to 70 megawatts worth just to have, make sure that we're over, we have over capacity available to us. And at the same time, we'd have to tie that in with some type of battery technology to make sure that we're, you know, producing and releasing the power whenever it's necessary. So, uh, you know, you're looking at about $3 a watt when you add batteries, and that's about $210 million. Now we're spending about $24 million a year with TVA, and that could go right back to some co-op we may set up if to generate our own power. However, you're looking at about a 9- to 10-year payback, and we don't have any redundancy. So if our system goes down, Glasgow is down, unless we have a backup or a standby power arrangement with somebody like TVA. However, TVA does have a standby power tariff, but by the time we add the standby power tariff to what we're already going to be selling it for to, to recoup and to recoup the investor's return on investment that they're going to require for this self-generation project, I think we're in worse shape than we were sticking with TVA. So, you know, like I said before, we've, we've really fully exhausted what we feel like is our analysis of what our options are. And the only thing that at this point we feel like that a, a good, solid consultant could tell us would be what our options may be in the future. And unfortunately, as a board, we have to look at what we have in front of us today. We can't look at what might come along five years down the road. Even though that crystal ball of the consultants may be better than mine, I don't think that I'm doing anybody justice by betting on what might happen five years down the road when this contract with TVA today is offering us about $12 million over the next 20 years that gets injected right back into this economy. And you know what that means. That's a four times turnover. I mean, that's and once you spend that dollar, somebody else spends that dollar, that generates about four times of the, the economic impact is about four times of what the actual investment was. So, you know, Looking, we're looking forty to fifty million dollars worth of additional economic impact to this community by doing nothing more than continuing on with the the provider that we have currently, mm -hmm. and we have price controls in place in the contract. So we're not really, you know, everybody's worried about well, what if they just raise the rates on you twenty percent next year? Well, that's in the contract. They can't do that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So we've got some protections there, and I want to make sure that everybody understands that we're not just jumping into this thing, you know, just because we. Uh, we think we want to win, and that's not what this is about. Um, what we found is is that uh, once people fully understand the context and what's going on with, um, you know, how these things work, uh, not just on a face or surface level, but kind of under behind the scenes, that we seem to get a little bit better response and people have a better understanding of why we really think about, um, you know, taking on a twenty-year contract. Brennan made me promise not to cover old territory, but just in closing, I'd like to get your own thought. Obviously, the elephant in the room in this situation has been the issues with the infiltricity, whether people loved it, liked it. We're, we don't have to get into that. If that whole situation hadn't occurred, do you think this would be almost a shoe-in agreement, or do you think there would still be this certain you know, element that seems strongly opposed to this? Yeah, I know. That's, that's a tough question, Daniel. Thanks. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, um, I hate to answer what ifs mm -hmm. because the, the the situation was this: we were in a state of declining kilowatt hour sales. We when and when you make your money and to cover your overhead from marking your product up from what you you buy it for one price, you mark it up, you sell it for another, and that difference is how you cover all of the overhead that you have for operating your business. When you're in a utility company, we can't just 
when we, our sales start going down, we can't just stop providing power to a certain part of the community and cut back here. And, you know, like private industry can lay off people and shut divisions down, move locations, you know, renegotiate rent, renegotiate rent. There's all kinds of cost mitigation efforts you can take if you're a private industry, but a public utility can't do that. Mm-hmm. We have the same cost no matter how many people are on the grid. Mm-hmm. So we have to, at the time, we had to look at other mitigating efforts to make sure that we can still operate reliably this utility company. I mean, we are responsible literally for keeping the lights on in the staff. Mm-hmm. And um, trust me, reliability is much more important than price. Ask anybody in the country that has high electric bills mm-hmm. or high kilowatt hour. You go out to California, parts of California are 25, 30 cents a kilowatt hour. They pay it because they know the other side of it is, I just have to have my electricity shut down for a period of time. And we're seeing that in California now. We don't want to get ourselves in that position because number one, it's not good for just the citizenry in general. It's not good for commerce. And it's certainly not good for industry that wants to come into this community if they because we have to have rolling brownouts, for example, because we have not maintained the grid to a point that makes it attractive to that to that industry. So we had we had no choice. When you say if it could have changed, mm-hmm. if we still be in this position, we really had no choice but mm-hmm. to do this. If we did, there was you know we're going to have to sacrifice reliability. I don't think that's good for anybody. Um, but the uh, the twenty year deal they have made it very attractive. So I'd say if we hadn't, you know, we probably wouldn't even be on the air right now mm-hmm. discussing any of this stuff if maybe this rate structure hadn't been put in place to start with. Sure. Yeah. And, and I was going to say, I think one important part of all of this is that um, it, it's your rate structure, too. It's not necessarily that, you know, yeah. that, that's the most important part, I think, that people should realize is that, you know, we can recompose the board all we want to try, but the same problems are going to exist or the same right. challenges. That's right. So uh, I, I just wanted to add that. You yeah, know, I mean, I, listen, I, I've got, I turn my air off and I, I don't run my microwave and I, mm-hmm. you know, do all of the things that I, I want to do and I don't like it. There's plenty of times in the summer when I come home and I'm hot and, you know, and I'm upset because my house is hot, but after 15, 20 minutes, it cools down and so do I. Mm-hmm. So, um, I have to deal with the same issue. So I'm certainly not insulated from the plight of people, you know, and, and uh, you know, the hardships. Unfortunately, as a public utility, we don't have the option by law to set rates based on economic class. And uh, I would love to be able to have a special rate for people that maybe are having a hard time. And I, I get that. Uh, I'm certainly not immune to, you know, that suffering that some people have. But at the same time, my hands are tied. We cannot, as a board, set a tariff structure based on anything other than consumption. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, most of the time, the highest consumption come from the lowest income earners. Mm-hmm. And that's because a lot of times the houses or the rental houses or whatever mm-hmm. the, the housing may be, they're not insulated, they don't have good roofs, they don't have good windows in them, and those are normally the ones that have to pay the highest electric bills. Sure. So it's a systemic problem that goes well beyond where we are with rate structure and tariff structure within the EPB. This is a systemic problem that needs to be addressed at its core level, and that is how do we ensure that these homes are not these energy hogs? How do we make that happen? And that's going to take a concerted effort from lots of parties, not just the EPB. Absolutely. Well, of course, um, you know, I know both of you all have, uh, you know, very vocal during the meetings. So um, I hope this may have been an extra opportunity to, you know, just clarify some things. 
of course. So we appreciate you all joining us today. Yeah, thank uh, you for coming. Again, Tag Taylor, the chair of the EPB board, and uh, Libby Short joining us today, uh, board member. So thank you all. Yeah, thank, thank you, you all very much. much. Thanks for having us. This is going to be the end of the show for this week. We appreciate everybody tuning in. Just like to rehash that the part of this podcast, we really want to get into issues that are important to you, issues beyond the normal headlines and you know normal stories that we do. You be able to dig into a little bit deeper. A big part of that process uh, for Brendan and myself is hearing from you. Uh, there are things that we don't know about that we need to hear from you. We need to know what is of concern to you. And the best way to do that, uh, personally, Contact me. My email is dsuddeth at glasgowdailytimes.com. That's D-S-U-D-D-E-A-T-H at glasgowdailytimes.com. Or you can give us a call at the office, 270-678-5171, and ask for Daniel. Brennan? Absolutely. Uh, likewise with me, uh, you know, my email is bren, which is B-R-E-N-N dot crane, C R A. I N at gmail.com. And of course, uh, WCLU radio at gmail.com is also another email. And then uh, our office phone here, uh, you can get to the newsroom. That's 270-651-9149. And technically 800-956-1023 if you wanted to. Uh, But nonetheless, yes. So we... uh, What's your fax? Uh, I'm just messing. Six five one nine two two two. You got them all remembered, man. (laughs) You got to. Barely remember my birthday. Well... You know, it's just one of those things you got to remember. But, uh, you know, that that's so important, I think, is that we want to hear from the community. And I know we say that a lot, you know, like, send us a tip, send us this. It's not us trying to be lazy. It's just what matters, you know, mm-hmm. just we, we want to get to those ideas. So mm-hmm. um, I, I'm very pleased with, you know, the, the voices we heard today, of course, in relation to these topics. And we want to hear what you thought about these topics. You know, don't be afraid because this is uh, this is a good part about our democracy is, is we have this freedom of speech. So um, thank you for joining me, Daniel. And of course, uh, you know, I joined you, you joined me type of thing, and uh, we'll, we'll do it in the future. I look forward to it. Thanks for listening, everybody. This podcast is a joint effort between the Glasgow Daily Times and WCLU Radio, located in Glasgow, Kentucky. For more information or to read stories, you can visit WCLURadio.com or GlasgowDailyTimes.com.